Sun Tzu, the Chinese strategist, tells us that strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory. But tactics without strategy is just noise before defeat. My name's Jim Molan, and welcome to our Noise Before Defeat podcast. Welcome back to the Noise Before Defeat podcast with Senator Jim Molan. In our third episode of this six-part series, we covered Australia's domestic vulnerabilities from a national security perspective, but this week we'll be turning our focus overseas. Senator, welcome back. Yes, thanks, Sarah. And it's, it's good to be in the fourth podcast now. We're moving along. And so far, we've covered an introduction to the series, the nature of modern war, the domestic vulnerabilities that Australia faces. I've tried to make the case that Australia has vulnerabilities and that we should look to our uncertain future by preparing. Now, this is something, preparing, this is something that we haven't done well throughout our last 100 years of major crises. And a key step in preparing is to begin to look how vulnerable you are. So in the last podcast, I listed the internal vulnerabilities as an overdependence on imports, an over-dependence on a single market and vulnerable sea lines, a military developed for a different conflict than we now face, and a complacent and sometimes delusional society. Yes, so we went through those last week as internal weaknesses that need to be addressed, but there are, of course, also external forces that could be inimical to us, despite the common belief shared by many, including myself at times, that everyone loves Australians. Yeah, I I, I do agree that we tend to think that everyone loves us. And as a middle power, a liberal democracy, we are not a widely unpopular nation, but not everyone loves us and respects us. And I jokingly refer to this as the Bali syndrome. Now, as (laughs) as a general public... We go to Bali, everyone loves us, and we think that the rest of the world loves us as well. But I guess I only say that to be contentious. But of course, in my own experience, every time I go overseas with the military, someone tries to kill me. So I guess there is a bit of a different view of all of us. (laughs) Yes, that's definitely not everyone's experience, being overseas as an Aussie. But if this is a vulnerability, why don't people like us? We don't really directly threaten anyone. And Couldn't it also be both? Can't everyone broadly love Australians as a culture and a people, but then perceive us differently from a strategic global point of view? Can't it sort of be both? Yeah, I I think it can be. I think that's correct. But as a liberal democracy, which is allied by common beliefs to the US, Australia does represent something to particularly focus on by authoritarian groups or by authoritarian countries. And if you can't give the US a kicking, you might be able to give a small ally a bit of a kicking. Um, Mm. We are seen as a threat to such authoritarian governments because of what we are, because we offer an alternative to authoritarianism. We've seen this with Islamic terrorists and with aggressive comments made by China's Department of Foreign Affairs and China's controlled media. We're also an object of attention, as I said before, as a strong ally of the US. We may also attract aggression because we're a resource-rich country. Well, I'm definitely feeling a bit naive for believing everyone loves Aussies full stop and I've clearly been a bit of a victim of that Bali syndrome. So where does that leave us for this episode? Where do we start today? Well, we've now seen from previous podcasts, Sarah, that we must do more to ensure our sovereignty. That regional tension and war is more than possible and living off US-created stability, prosperity and globalisation 
cannot continue because the world of power relativities has changed. Yep. Domestic vulnerabilities, as I described in the last podcast, have made us particularly vulnerable. But today, as I said, we need to look at those external vulnerabilities that impact on our national security now for the first time since 1945. Mm. So, Senator, perhaps you could start by listing those primary external vulnerabilities for us. I think we really enjoyed the dot points last time because it just gave us a good mind map to follow and then we'll go through and look at them one by one throughout the episode. Maybe start, as you did in the last episode, with an overview of each one before we dive in. Let me do that. I, I kind of list Australia's externally created vulnerabilities, that is, what others do to us to create vulnerabilities, unlike what we do to ourselves that make us weak, I list them as grey zone activities, assertive or aggressive behaviour of regional powers, and we cannot control that, nor are we responsible for it, dependence on trade that can be used against us, and just having, an, uh, as an ally, the United States can make us something of a target. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to the first point and dive a little deeper into the grey zone activities. You've touched in previous episodes on aspects of that period of tension and aggression in the lead up to conflict, but can you just run us through those again in this particular context of international vulnerabilities? Uh, yes, I, I did touch on them when, I, when we were talking in podcast two. And at that stage, I was describing the build up of tension before a war. Grey zone activities, you'll remember, are activities that kind of exist between peace and war, between competition, which is normal between nations, and conflict between nations. And of course, even as grey zone activities, they can be very, very damaging. Now, for example, cyber attacks, even massive cyber attacks that few nations have ever experienced, uh, these could be forced on us. And in order to defend ourselves against them, of course, we've recently spent about $1.6 billion just to defend ourselves. Mm, we've certainly seen a lot of that recently and the Prime Minister has even warned us against that. Yes, he has. And, and he's applying it now very seriously to all businesses in Australia, the big banks, big companies, but also that vast number of middle-level companies which have got to protect themselves against cyber attacks. And as I say, it's cost us $1.6 billion so far. Yep. Uh, the next grey zone activity might be to create conflict or disturbances and the fragile nation of sea commerce, which we depend on almost entirely, is likely to diminish or cease altogether as insurance for commercial shipping evaporates once there is a chance of conflict. Yes, you mentioned in an earlier episode the Israeli example of that where commercial shipping ceased after an attack. Yes, and it ceased for the simple reason that they couldn't get insurance for those ships to go into an area where there was conflict or tension. And I made the comment that commercial ships don't float on water, they float on insurance dollars. And that's something we've got to remember for the simple reason that those ships don't need to wait for a war to stop. Mm. There's another reason why exports might cease. Uh, they might cease from nations that might normally export critical items to Australia because of their perceptions of uncertain domestic need, of their own uncertain domestic need. And they've got to look after their own people first, of course, and we saw that so often across the world during COVID. Yeah. We might also see limited local aggression in this period of time, even conflicts such as border claims or incidents or the settling of old scores. So that might not impact directly on us, but it might be very, very important as an external vulnerability 
because it impacts on many of our friends and they might ask for our assistance. Well, we have seen real violence on the India-China border. Yes, we have, and we've now seen it twice. And this is an example of extreme grey zone activity, but probably the most concerning grey zone activity is ignoring the rule of law. And the most pronounced example of this is the South China Sea Island building, the intimidation and violence against neighbours in sea border disputes over China's maritime claims. This is a very big problem for all of us. Mm. I mean, when we look at vulnerabilities from outside that come into this country, a very common form of grey zone activity is influencing or interfering in internal politics, in our internal politics, with an aim to diminish trust in national institutions. And that is going on, as we've discussed before, in this country at the moment. You actually already mentioned in a previous episode the ASIO and AFP raids on the New South Wales politician, Mr Musilmane, and I assume the Belt and Road Initiative, BRI, in Victoria. Correct. And and how BRI can be used in a grey zone sense is to put under stress the relationship between the states and the federal government, because the federal government is responsible for foreign affairs. Now, I know we're about to legislate to remove this, and that situation where it can be exploited and created as a vulnerability should then disappear. And also, we've seen trade used as a weapon and applied to uh, our exports of beef, wine and barley. And really, who knows what might be next in that area? What about even something like hostage taking? Seems to be something that could be used as leverage. Yes, it, it certainly can. And we've seen that used recently in Iran and in Canada, and perhaps to put pressure on Australia through Australian journalists now under arrest in China. And of course, space is not immune and offensive devices manoeuvred in space with a view to later destroying enemy satellites is occurring and shooting down of satellites has been demonstrated. So, you know, we look at our own internal situations, we depend so deeply in the commercial area and the military area on satellites. Mm. And what about the wolf warriors? Well, you're right, aggressive language is not unknown in diplomacy, but references to us as white trash does take this to a new level. (laughs) And, And, you know, building threatening alliances is all part of diplomacy. And those alliances could, can put pressure on other countries. And we're seeing that now with the four nations of Russia, China, Iran and North Korea, plus the ideology of Islamic extremism. If they come together formally in alliance, that's one thing, but they always have the potential going into the future to come together in some alliance which should worry us. Yeah, well, I mean, haven't we already seen that in the Middle East with China and Russia supporting Iran in the UN recently? Yes, and and we have seen that, sadly. And we now see China making promises to Iran to supply arms once the UN arms embargo finishes this month. Mm. You know, it really is a shame because we, we should welcome the rise of China, but in a more general sense, in relation to grey zone activities, we see extraordinary information gathering, we see intellectual property theft, and this is the Thousand Talents program we spoke about before and personal details, 
and we see quite an amazing amount of espionage. And as I said before, you know, I am surprised that in this day and age we're still using the term that I associate with the Cold War, espionage. Yeah, I remember you saying that the FBI are investigating, I think it was 2,000 active counterintelligence cases involving Chinese espionage in the US now and even closing down consulates for spying. It, it, it is, and this is moving us to a, a whole new world. And in that world, there's also been an increase in direct threats and increased armed forces capability. And finally, there's been an increase in direct threats and increasing armed force capability. Uh, that is, people are building bigger militaries. There's an arms race on. And this involves threats against Taiwan, Japan, India, and a really dramatic increase forecast in Chinese nuclear capability and in the level of their numbers of most threatening missiles that they possess. Yes, of course, it makes sense that China is such a big focus in this area, but sometimes I think we get a bit bogged down and only focus on China. Do you think we should also be looking elsewhere to other regions? Yes, we do. We, we, we tend to immediately think of China and all of these things, and I, I, I've said it once and I will say it many times, we should welcome the rise of China. But when we look at the next step up from grey zone, that is truly assertive or aggressive behaviour, threats or real challenges, we do need to mention China, but not only China. We need to mention China because for years we lived at the edge of the world, mm. long way away from most crises and most conflicts. Now we don't. Now we are in the region where the biggest crisis could occur. So it might be healthy to focus only on China, as so many do. And I've said a number of times, the US considers that the threats to what is generally referred to as the West consists of four nations and an ideology. Yeah. And I've listed those four nations as being Russia, China, North Korea and Iran, and the ideology being Islamic extremism. Now, we're allied to the US and we live in the priority region for the United States, mm. what they call the Indo-Pacific, in the region that they are making the assessment that this threat exists. So it's fair to say that this is our threat as well. Mm. And the US back in their national security strategy of 2007 talked about those four nations in real detail. And I'm advocating that we do a national security strategy so when we see the American version of this, that is truly relevant. And they spoke about Russia, which we should never forget is an Asian power, but a challenger to the US across the world. Russia has got interests in the Baltic and in Ukraine and in the Southern Caucasus. And the effect of this is it disperses the amount of US power that we might like, think, like to think exists to come and back us up. Mm. China, of course, is the rising power. It has been aggressive. Militarily and economically, it's extraordinarily powerful. It's wealthy and it's got a high degree of central control. So unlike democratic nations, if China wants to do something, its population is normally the last people that they consult about it. <laughs> the biggest problem in the Middle East at the moment is, is Iran. 90% of our oil comes from the Middle East and we're, moving, we're making very, very good moves to establish our own strategic reserves. But in this area, we are particularly vulnerable. And North Korea, of course, is nuclear armed. It's unpredictable. But I don't think it represents as such 
uh, a particular threat. It is just unpredictable. <laughs> and, of course, I speak about Islamic extremism, which is still across the world. It's in our region in the southern Philippines, and it's waiting for a chance to rise again. Uh, it certainly exists in the source of all our oil in the Middle East in a very frightening way. Yeah. Okay, so if that's the grey zone activities, then what about the second major point of external vulnerability, our dependence on sea trade? Yes, and it's quite amazing. Uh, we are totally dependent for our prosperity on sea trade. Uh, it, this is a vulnerability which is forced on us from outside the nation. Uh, we accept a bit of responsibility because we have got ourselves into a situation where most of our trade comes from one country. But as tension builds, must much less if conflict occurs, our ports are a single point of failure for Australia. So I put ports and sea transport in the same category. It's a major vulnerability. And, of course, people forget that Australia, we own about a handful of ships, but normally we don't own shipping which we can rely on to move our exports uh, if we need to. You know, it's, it's very easy to close us down from an economic point of view or from access to essentials and to stop our export of resources, which is our wealth. Yeah. So moving to the next point, something we've touched on a couple of times already, is the change in the US's global position. But why do you mention our alliance here in the context of an external weakness? Because surely our alliance actually brings us a lot of advantages and could therefore be seen as a strength. Isn't the US still the most powerful nation in the world? Yeah, it, it certainly is, Sarah. It's undoubtedly still the most powerful nation on Earth. But it's also a nation which has accepted the widest responsibility on Earth. So it's powerful, yes, but it sees itself as having responsibilities across the face of the Earth. For years, it accepted it, that its role was as the world's policeman. And really, any nation's power is relative to the tasks that it, it, that, that it sees as it having to perform. And the point I'm making is that because we ally ourselves so closely with the US, and that's great. It's a great thing because it's provided us with great security and prosperity over the last 75 years. Because we ally ourselves with them, then we may also become the object of attention of a nation that primarily has an argument with the US, but takes it out on us as well. And in that sense, I see our alliance as a vulnerability, but I'm not saying back away from the US and I'm not saying back away from our alliances. But haven't I heard, though, somewhere along the grapevine that the US spends vast amounts on defence? Shouldn't that keep them in a really strong position? Uh, it, well, it certainly puts, it has for many, many years put the US in a strong position and the US does spend an awful lot on defence. And, of course, none of this grey zone or threat stuff would matter in the least if the US was as strong as it was at the end of the Cold War, which ended in about 1991. And people keep on saying no one else in the world is a threat because the US spends more on defence than the next 10 nations combined. And, of course, we should say, wow, this is pretty comforting for us all, but really it ain't. <laughs> in dollar terms, China spends one quarter what the US does. But the comparisons are very, very difficult. If you use purchasing power parity instead of just straight dollars, China spends about 70% of what the US does. So that makes it look a little more worrying. And who really knows how much China actually spends? In many, many areas, they continue to surprise us. And I remember several years ago, I was told that a Chinese general makes about a hundredth in dollar terms of what I made as a, an Australian general. 
Now, I'd like to think I'm 100 times better, but probably <laughs> not. And this is the difference. This is what we've got to address. I have often thought that, actually. We tend to assess nations by how much they spend and not really inquiring further to how effective that spending is. Correct. And unfortunately, expenditure is a poor measure of military capability. Spending and having things, such as hundreds of planes, tanks, ships, uh, troops, of course, Having things is not the measure of defence capability. What defines defence capability is the ability of a nation to do things, that is, win wars or conduct operations. All we have to do is look back over recent history. Clever countries often achieve superiority over the mighty US because the US has global responsibilities, as I've mentioned, and challenges only have local interests and can focus their forces on a local area or use different techniques, I should say, denying US strength, the classic example being Vietnam. I could see that so obviously when I was in Iraq. The US had 150,000 troops in Iraq, but Al-Qaeda was never more than a few thousand, and they tore that nation to bits because they used extreme violence from the middle of a population. And, of course, we know that ISIS was even worse. We could not be everywhere and they played on this weakness. Yeah. So what you're saying is the US is not as strong now as it was at the end of the Cold War. Yeah, and that's a key point. The US produces every two years a national security strategy and Congress mandates that. It is the law. This looks at all the tasks that the US has in national security and the strength of its military and its economy and its people and its states And it says what the US can actually do, not what it spends or what it has. And that's the difference. An example is that in 1991, the US had a navy of 600 warships. Now, it has less than 300 and the Chinese navy is larger than the US navy. Now, I suspect that the 300 US battleships are better than the larger number of Chinese battleships, but they're not much good if they're in the Mediterranean and the problem is in the Pacific. No, but even more important than just counting ships or planes or tanks, what a nation can actually do is the real test. And in 1991, roughly, at the end of the Cold War, the US had a strategy uh, which it called its two-and-a-half war strategy. It had a capability in that extraordinary nation to win, fight and win two major wars, one in Europe perhaps, one in Asia, as well as fighting and winning a minor war, maybe in South America or in the Middle East, wherever, at the same time. Now, when you think about that, that is just extraordinary. But now their national security strategy has changed significantly. In 2017, their national security strategy aims for them to win one war, and that's against China, and to hold in a second war. Now, That really is, by any measure, a 30 to 50% diminution of US power since 1991. That is a terrifying thought for all the US's allies around the world. So what does that mean for Australia as one of those allies of the US? What does that actually translate to? Well, quite basically, the lesson that we should take from this is that the US cannot come to all its allies' aid as it could during most of the post-World War II period because it was the biggest kid on the block. But still, there is a strong belief in our society that US power is infinite. And I had that belief when I went to Iraq and I worked in the belly of the beast 
I worked in the midst of the US military for that year and I realised how limited its real power is. It is not infinite and the US is sick to death of spending on defence, especially when it thinks that its allies are not assisting to carry the burden of world defence. <laughs> it actually reminds me of that saying, you know, never meet your heroes, as you've been able to do, because the illusion will be shattered. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so what do all these factors culminate in from a strategy perspective in your eyes? Can we rely on the US going forward, do you think? This is a critical question that, that, that we need to directly address, but also get out of the psychology of our own minds. Because most Australians still think that regardless of what we do in our own defence, the US will always come to our aid with its infinite forces because we're good guys. <laughs> Could we do it by ourselves against a regional superpower such as China? Do we have any other choice than to be allied with the US? You know, really, the question is, are we on our own? And if it does turn out that we are on our own, could we defend ourselves against a regional superpower, do you think? Are we even ever likely to have to fight a superpower on our own? And again, these are very complex questions, which in the extreme should only be answered by governments as a whole who have access to extraordinary intelligence. Uh, and I make my judgment on this based on my military experience and, my, and on my intelligence experience and on my government experience. So it is a very complex question and really goes to the heart of what, what this podcast series is about. Could Australia ever defend itself against China, even with the right strategy and its implementation over time? I think that we have an enormous defence potential in this country. We've just decided not to realise it at the moment. Mm. Despite COVID, we're still a fabulously wealthy nation and we certainly have something worth defending. Therefore, we must ask ourselves, do we have a choice? To talk about that in detail, I would rather wait for the next podcast. But the answer to your specific question is that at the moment, no, we couldn't successfully fight China. Even the US is having doubts about whether in certain circumstances it could win against China. Nor could we at the moment, which is part of our big strategy, nor could we at the moment deter Chinese aggression because of our national security power. But to be positive, if we applied ourselves, as I'll explain in the next podcast, we could become a regional superpower. So all is not lost. This is not, this is not a deeply disappointing or frustrating situation. We could do it. We just need to decide to do it. Mm. And the point I make, though, is that we are unlikely in the real world to ever be trying to deter or defending ourselves against the full might of China. What we should use as our planning scenario is to defend ourselves against what I call a collateral attack from China during a US and China war. And I think that that is the realistic test. This is what we should be stress testing ourselves and the entire nation against. Uh, and we could do it, Sarah. We just need the will and we need the time. Well, I guess the biggest question of all then is, do we have either the will or the time? Uh, yes, that is the biggest question. There's no two ways about it. And as I say, with an abundance of prudence and realism, I love saying an abundance of prudence because everyone seems to be saying it at the moment, <laughs> we should accept as a prudent planning condition that Australia cannot depend on US help 
in any serious crisis because it will be looking after itself. It needs all its military to achieve its own aims. And that might work to our advantage in certain circumstances, but what it does do is it makes self-reliance the critical consideration of everything that I'm talking about. Well, of course, that leaves the questions of how we do that, which is what we'll be back to explore in next week's episode. Senator, before we move on to that next week, do you have any closing thoughts for today? Yes, I do, Sarah. I've always got some closing thoughts of some (laughs) kind, but let me make the following points just to close off this podcast. Increasing tension or conflict is a reality. It's our reality, and we as a nation must accept it. There are many threats to our sovereignty, that come from outside the nation, but primarily there are two. The first one is the four nations and an ideology I talk about, but the second is just as important, and that is that the US is far less powerful than it used to be. Mm. We must remain in alliances, but we should also build new ones to balance the power shift in the Indo-Pacific area. We must assume that we will be on our own. This is a psychological step that we must take. Because we'll be on our own, self-reliance across the nation to maintain our security should be our entire focus. Australia must be prepared as a nation and not just the ADF, and we must be independently strong. We will not be able to depend on the US if we ever could, of course. We can do this. We just need, as I said, we need the will and the time. Well, in the next episode, we will talk about what Australia could do with the right strategy, will and time. If you did enjoy listening along, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and recommend it to a friend. See you all next week for episode five of Noise Before Defeat. For further information on the topics we covered today or to learn more about the Senator's plan for a national security strategy, please visit his website, jimmolan.com.